all to Trouble in Paradise. We can't thank you enough for listening as we continue to parse out the foundational narrative for Christians across the world. To set the stage for where we are after last time, we've been talking about the implications of Eden related to our forefather Adam, talking through the difference between the idea of original sin and what we've come to call the alternative to original sin, death management. That death and disconnection from God by way of the tree of life, through the free choice of Adam, plunged, by necessity, Adam and his offspring into the unknown, away from God, thereby leaving man's soul longing for communion with God and his body decrepit and racing toward death, as it no longer has access to the sustenance that God provided in their temple home, where Adam was a child of God being made into something more perfect than he was at creation. We refer to this as death management. Man is spiritually dead and physically dying. Part of the point of Christianity is the wrestling with these ideas. So with that, Matt, I'm going to hand it over to you. Tell us what you've been thinking about this week and since our last episode. Well, you just got me thinking about Jacob and wrestling. That's the way it is. I was reading this morning that to please God, you've got to believe that he exists, but also that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, that earnest seeking. And wrestling is a form of that. And sometimes we're made to wrestle with things that don't really need wrestled with. Sometimes we do, but we're, we're going to go back. We didn't get to wrap up and I don't think we'll ever get to wrap up the idea of contingency as the antidote to original sin. When we think about Genesis, one of the key doctrines that forms out of the creation narrative is the idea that the creation was made from nothing. God did not take pre-existing material and refashion it. God is not alongside an eternal universe, and, and he manipulates it somehow, and the eternal universe also somehow interacts, almost trade almost as conscious. When, when you listen to atheists talk about the universe or evolution, does this, does that, it becomes personified. It's very anthropomorphized. The fact that God creates from nothing and that he creates at all shows this is the difference between us. We are always contingent, always. In the garden, they are contingent upon eating, like we've said. They're not immortal. They could have died if they stopped eating, if they stopped doing the things that promote and sustain life. And, and that's the result of their sin. That's the consequence of it, that God holds back the, the source of life. And a lot of the early church fathers this is both a really drastic consequence, but it's also a partial gift because if man had unlimited time to concoct new evil imaginations, um, not only would he live in the hell, but he would make it hell for everyone. And it's the same idea with God's presence in, in Israel when God threatens to remove his presence because his presence is the protective just like in Eden, they're meant for this liturgical communal life. It takes place in a certain space. And then later, if they continue in these death-driven behaviors that he's going to leave, it's, yeah, that's a horrible consequence, but it's also, if he remained, his presence would destroy them. When Moses is told he can't see God, that's for Moses' protection. When Uzzah, who touches the ark, God's not necessarily mad at him. I mean, there's a sense in which he's acting presumptuously. But but it's more of an accident. Oh, I shouldn't take a bath with a blow dryer. It's the idea that God's presence, since he is, he's life. 
you think of sources of life, there are sources of energy that are dangerous. There's certain things you don't want to get too close to the sun. You don't want to get too close to an electrical source that your body cannot handle and so forth. That's sort of the idea. In Eden, they're made for that. I remember hearing John Piper say once, and I, I just thought it was an interesting analogy. He talked of imputation like asbestos, that asbestos could withstand extreme heat without being burned. We're made to experience that energy of God, but also to enjoy it, that we're meant to thrive in it. When you're at a, I hate using these analogies, but I don't know of better ones. When you're at a beach and the sun is beating on you and it's hot but it feels good. I think it's something like that. I remember being drawn to, not to interrupt, no. I remember being drawn to uh, the first Iron Man movie with uh, Tony Stark. He was very contingent on his uh, little center mm. thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he's got this shrapnel getting ready to plunge into his heart at all times, but he made some contraption. Forgive me, Marvel fans. I, I don't know any more details <laughs> beyond that, but he made some contraption to pull, pull it back uh, and keep him alive while also uh, thriving with the energy that it produced as it powered his uh, suit. Yeah, yeah. So some, something like that. There's a there's an interesting mix of the concepts that we're talking about. You know, the the big word, aseity, God's being is, is in himself. We don't get to say that ever. We always have to plug into an energy source. We have to eat. We have to sleep. We have to, if you get deficient on a vitamin, you're going to, Something's going to go wrong. Have some scurvy. God has none of that. He needs nothing. He gifts to us everything that we need to live. And partially just to reinforce to us that he's our source of life. Think to the wilderness and the manna. And then later, I was thinking about John 6 this morning. It's such a contentious verse because he's telling them they've got to eat his flesh and blood or they have no life. Thinking again to the last episode, we talked about how some verses get spiritualized because of a dualism that creeps in. If my soul is the thing mainly that needs saved, my body gets sort of uh, forgotten about. But Jesus, when he's telling them, you're only following me around because I gave you the free food. And then they talk about you know, Moses and the manna in the wilderness. And he says, Moses didn't give you any manna. God gave you that manna. And the connection is they're almost saying we had good reason to follow Moses because there was a food source. Why not now? You know, and then he just blows the whole thing up, knowing that it's going to be scandalous, knowing that it's everyone leaves at the end of the discussion that, no, I'm your real source of life. These things all pointed to me, uh, the manna, the provision, in fact, all food in general, it all points to me, pointed is supposed to get reinforced constantly is you need me. This is where you go home. This is where you find rest. I'm all of that. And we forget it so easily. Is it possible? And maybe you can speak to this just from your readings. Is it possible that the comfort in our bodily life that we've experienced um, over time, really, but I guess post-industrial revolution the emphasis became more spiritual because of our physical needs being more and more met throughout the ages. Or is that too simplistic? I'm just wondering why, why did we grow up in an era where everything was, the focus was always spiritual death versus 
bodily death. I mean, we all know that we die, but man, we sure all of the material that we promote in Christendom in the modern era is geared towards this spiritual death. You need spiritual resurrection as opposed to spiritual and body. The way that I, I try to get it out of people usually, if I'm wanting to feel it out, is what's your what's heaven like for you? Mm. Usually that's telling enough. When you go to a funeral and they tell the kids not to go up to the casket because that's too traumatic, or they say, Grandma's in a better place. Grandma's looking down on you from, I don't know, the outer space, stars. You watch any sort of talent show where somebody gets the golden ticket and suddenly, you know, somebody's reassuring them that their father is, well, that may be true and all, but that's not the permanent existence of anyone. For Paul to have a disembodied existence forever is is unthinkable. In fact, he says, when people are denying the resurrection, that if there's no resurrection, everybody ought to feel really sorry for us idiots. Of every moron to feel sorry for, we top the list. He even says, we're still in our sins if the resurrection hasn't happened, and if it's not going to happen in the future. Eat, drink, and be merry, otherwise. Yeah, yeah. That's, I think people... It's out there. It's this ethereal place. It's disconnected from earth. And even in our apocalyptic theology, how many times is the earth getting obliterated? All these things sort of reinforce that the body and your connection to the earth that you were taken from and made from, from the dust of it, that there's this giant disconnect between that and your spiritual life. But they go together. They're really inseparable. God breathes life into Adam, and then he's made a living soul. It's the combination that makes him complete. It's not just one. I think in our imagination, when you've, you've got the soul to get saved, because it was the thing most affected in the fall, and the soul's connected to the will, because they've largely been collapsed into the same thing. The nature of a person is its will, and the nature and the soul and the will, they're all sort of, they're almost interchangeable. When that thing gets saved, it doesn't need a body. So you can dispense with it. Or you can do the opposite. You can go crazy and torture yourself if you want to, because the body stays a frustrating source of, of uh, where sin takes place. But even then, you're hoping for a liberation from it at some point. There's a just constant chaos in in the culture i mean everything disembodiment we're complaining about that in christian discussion um and yet there's this race with the advent of ai to get some mechanical body to download our mm. memories and thoughts into for all of time yeah so there's this there's this schizophrenic maybe the the best word or fragmentation of mind uh, fragmentation of story hmm. that is producing different denominations within the secular world yeah you know, we always complain about denominations within the church but there's denominations in the secular world too especially with the rise of ai i don't believe that our consciousness can be digitized but the fact that people are trying shows this desperation hmm. for immortality and I think 
Well, even if it was possible, what would it be like? A long time ago, I was trying to find a TV show I could watch with the boys when they were younger that we'd both enjoy. We could all sit together and watch, and we watched The Clone Wars. There was one episode that was extremely profound. I mean, at least I drew profound conclusions from it, but Yoda is sort of in this trance. Somebody is, I don't know if they've done magic on him, but they've they've convinced him virtually. I mean, he's it's either a dream or a vision or something that like you walk in, Yoda's there and every bad guy's there and they're all happy and they're all in this garden. All the fights are done. It's like they never even happened. And in this vision, he he realizes that it's fake. But he's given the option to stay in this fake reality and forget that he knows it's fake. But that's sort of the, that's the temptation. In The Matrix, you know, you've got one of the characters decides... He's having the meal with Agent Smith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, uh, he, he says, ignorance is bliss. He, he, he's willing to go back into The Matrix knowing it's fake, knowing it's not real, but it's programmed. And I think that's what an AI world would be like. It's, it's not real. So you have to, to, to want to live in it, you have to either assume nothing's real, that nothing, you know, reality doesn't matter, so you can make it what you want. I, I don't know. It all sounds like hell to me. No, it absolutely is hell. And it takes faith. It takes faith to trust God with your outcome in, in, a, real, in a real world, in a real life. Mm-hmm. Um, the attempt to digitize and live in an AI world, to have an AI girlfriend. Yeah, I read that story the other day in the news. Is very much taking your life in your own hands and displaying the exact opposite of faith. Like I, I was listening to this thing about AI girlfriends, and somebody who tells you exactly what you want to hear all the time, or even if they could, you know, tailor it in a way to where you've got a little pushback, but but you're the one with all the all the knobs. You can turn it up or down. You can. It's playing God. Only where God is, is totally manipulative. I don't, I don't trust people with something like that. And I, I see a question: Do these people really think that we're going to get a consciousness in the cloud, or, or an embodied, downloaded mind, or are they just banking on that we'll buy it, that we'll spend our money on it? Because we already do. It's sort of the same fantasy. You're creating a fantasy where there's no death and you get your way all the time. Well, to circle back to contingency, it's the ultimate Eden play over and over again. You're trying to, so I think of Ex Machina. I'm not sure if you've seen Oh, I've that. seen that, yeah. I think it's very reasonable to say that a lot of men see Ex Machina and they're like, oh, I would do it better. You know, if hmm. you don't know the outcome of that movie, there's uh, robotic women. Spoiler alert. <laughs> created by a, a genius and they look they look human um and of course that his goal is for them to be uh servants to him and slaves every, <laughs> slaves yeah to every whim and, and fantasy that he has and eventually they one of them turns on him but you can imagine with men inhabiting this god complex of well i can i can do this better you know they're trying to take contingency from god place it on themselves and then build a bunch of beings uh, enslaved to them where those beings are uh, contingent on the mind and 
contract. This only works if there's no freedom on the other person's side. Right. That has to be completely controlled by you. That's what a fantasy is. I mean, these types of fantasies anyway. It's it's when you dominate another person's will or they have no will. And you think, well, that sounds a little like some versions of Christianity. You might know of the original sin. Uh, C.S. Lewis responded to this, uh, this idea that the entire world is parasitic. In abortion arguments, they talk about a child like uh, a tumor or parasite. Well, all of existence is parasitic. It's, I don't think parasite's the right word, but if you just mean you need to eat something else to stay alive, yeah, we, we are all contingent upon something else for our existence. You're contingent on patterns. I mean, that's what you're saying. Yeah, and, the, and those patterns reinforce the reality. That's why we pray before we eat. Why do we pray? Before, why do we thank God for food? Because it keeps us alive. We're not expecting it to do something more than that, really. It's going to keep us healthy and alive, hopefully. These things, they reinforce this. Anything that gives a sense of, of health, of feeling good, you're thankful for them. I remember once we were we went to Key West and it's sunset there's a ton of people there the parking lot to this state park is filling up i think it's Fort Zachary Taylor and and at the end of the sunset there's in Key West you know they don't have normal beaches there it's just giant rocks that outline the the shore all of a sudden right at the moment of sunset hundreds of people stand up and applause You'd think they were worshiping the sun almost, but I don't think they were. I think it was the most human response to something beautiful. You stand, you do something with your hands, you might whip them, and they applaud it. That's saying thank you. We're thankful for things that increase our joy, keep us alive, keep our kids alive. God has wired this into the creation in order to lead us up to him. I've been thinking about um, satiation. Like once you get to the point where you're full, what do you do? You're good, really. You're you're at rest. No matter what the what the thing is, you think of uh, say it's a sport you're trying to excel at, or or just having a dinner, or a romantic relationship. Once you get to the place where the climax has taken place, maybe that's the end of a game, maybe that's whatever. That's the place where you're at rest. And all of those experiences are supposed to link our minds back. This is about Christ in the end. I think that's why Paul says when he compares the church to a marriage, he says it's a great mystery. But I think that's the, that's the meaning of it. On your best day with your wife, you're supposed to think back to Jesus, not because he becomes her, but because that relationship reinforces something that's also vertical, that I need my wife. Now, I, I could, I'm sure I can make it without her, maybe. But a lot of people don't. I mean, there's a lot of stories of people where one spouse dies and boom, yeah. the next one's gone. That connection is gone, so yeah. the other person's gone. Yeah. It was a really sad thing. Here, I'll make everybody sad. My son, we got him a BB gun once, and it was traumatic for him. He, he shot a duck. And killed it. And this was a pair of ducks that returned to our house 
like every year and laid eggs on the side of our house. And then the, and then one of them is just, they just look lost. He's never shot a BB gun again, but, um, not because of me, he, he just won't touch it. He came to that conclusion on his own. But I guess what I mean is we need each other. We all need each other. And that need ultimately corporately always is back to the need for, for ongoing life. You've got to have my life or you have no life. These sources of life that we have, they're meant to tell you something about, about the way things are. They're not in and of themselves all that there is. And when we realize that, or even when we realize that with people, this dates me. My, we watched uh, Full House religiously as kids. But I remember this episode where Jesse breaks his arms in a motorcycle accident and they play the Beatles song Help because he can't do anything on his own. He's trying to eat cereal with the casts on. That's a humbling experience when you physically need someone else. I've been watching my grandfather. You know, he's nearing the end of life. And I think it's interesting. The beginning of life, you're not really conscious of it, but the, but everybody else is. You have to be protected. And the mother's obviously going to be the most invested in that because she's the most, well, she has invested the most in it. I remember once one of our kids, the seatbelt in the backseat of the car would not, would not loosen up and it kept getting tighter as we tried to fix it. And we're, we're at a state park there in the back and she starts screaming, just screaming bloody murder, you know? And I'm like, honey, calm down. He's not, he's like, it's cutting off his circulation. He's going to blah, blah, blah. And, and she's panicked and I'm calm. I don't believe he's, well, we ended up cutting the seatbelt. That's mom. When you come into the world, people have to do that for you. When you leave the world, people have to do that for you all over again. Only this time you're conscious of it, most likely. You've got to realize, I need other people. But more than that, people don't exist on their own. People were created. So that leads up to, I need God. The whole, the whole world is teaching us that. It's, it was started in Eden. They knew they had to eat to live. They picked an alternate source of life. That was suggested wrongly. As as philosophical as people can get, it does it does get reduced down to that. Always. And I think too, looking at the total breadth of contingency is beneficial. We've been talking about fairly obvious forms of contingency like a mother and a child, a husband and a wife. Um, you mentioned food several times. Food is probably the biggest uh, example in scripture that we see throughout the entire narrative. But even the things that weren't known at the time of the Bible's uh, composition, we've, we see contingency even in, at the DNA level. Right. We, there are so many contingencies that we depend on that we don't even see. We certainly don't respect. Really. Right, because some, once you make one alteration or yes. one mutation or whatever, the consequences can be totally detrimental. You think of all that we do to protect life, and yet it's very vulnerable. And knowing our vulnerability is humbling. And people avoid thinking long about it because it's overwhelming. It, I I've told you before, I think instead of inherited 
sin. I think we all have something like PTSD mm-hmm. at a different level. Just as I remember scripture, uh, particular Old Testament, where God is repeatedly upset with the Israelites. I remember as a child reading those stories and just thinking like, God needs to find something else to do. <laughs> I'm, I'm dead serious. And it would, it would create confusion in me hmm. as I'm, an, as I'm older now, I find that so much anger that I have about society or even my children boils down to people, other people or my kids in these examples not recognizing their contingency hmm. and what you're right and what goes into maintaining their life. Hmm. And, you know, I remember there's no appreciation, there's no appreciation. And so now I, I'm able to look back in the scriptures and say, Oh yeah, that makes perfect sense that God would be hmm. just furious. They're acting as if he's not upholding their life every second of every day. Hmm. Like a farmer typically realizes contingency. The Bible portrays the city as sort of a wicked place and that the agrarian lifestyle is sort of more ideal. I think it's because it keeps you humble. You remember the dirt. People used to pray for rain. Not that long ago. I remember that. But back to what you said, we were watching a TV show last night. It was called Envoys on Netflix. And these um, this Catholic priest is disillusioned with his faith and he says god never listens to me never answers me and so forth and i don't know why i just i just stopped to think about that and i thought what does god what are we expecting god to say to us and you think to your parenting i know of how much i do at home and how little my kids do and what does it tell you it tells you i don't appreciate it i take it for granted you can do all the dishes forever. Great arrangement. But I thought the reason why some people feel like God is silent is really just that he always says the same thing. They've tuned him out. They've tuned him out. Yeah, it's it's yeah. like a parent. It's like he's speaking all the time in the form of creation and contingency. Right. Yeah. But it's also that God it's sort of like with your own parents. Do you expect with your own parents? brand new, like exhaustive, new volumes of wisdom every time you talk to them? No. I mean, even with just a parent, you've you've got their life. You've got their experiences. Usually there's something good to, to figure out from their life. Usually their advice is not horrid. Usually they're looking out for you in all these survival ways, whether it's financially, in your marriage, with your how you raise your kids. They're They're looking at that picture. And they and they feel that and they feel it more than you do, most likely, because now they're looking at two generations that they've affected and that they are affecting, and and you think, is mom gonna write ten ten new books for me? No, and you think of how exhaustive the Bible is, how exhaustive the natural world is, what it tells you. God doesn't have a lot of things he needs to say, and I think it's where when we look specifically for specifics that people get off track. But then on top of it, you've got, I really don't want to hear that anymore. Think if, if, if a parent's got a, a child in a 
toxic relationship and you keep saying, look, you got to get away from this guy. You can move in here if you have to. We'll do whatever we have to do, but you got to get away from this guy. And you just keep going back. Well, eventually you stop listening to mom. So that doesn't mean she's not speaking. It means how many times are you going to turn her off? I've had relationships like that very clearly where my message has been consistent for the duration. But eventually it just, it's so obvious that the hearer is tuning me out. Hmm. And so... I'm always looking for opportunities to speak, but sometimes I do. But largely, there becomes a, a sealing off. It's like they already know your position, and they stop asking, and they don't want to hear it anymore. Correct. And that doesn't mean you're silent, you're checked out. Back to thinking what hardening is. Hardening of the will, hardening of, of, the, of the mind. That's sort of how it works. I mean, it's... it's I don't want to listen. I don't want to keep these things in my consciousness. You hit a wall or when you hit rock bottom, now you're willing to listen again. And that's what pain does. I mean, pain typically is humbling in that way for people who won't listen. And that's all of us. Sin is humbling. At least it should be. Pain is humbling Just or, or just realizing I'm not self-sufficient. Again, my, I was thinking my grandfather, he's not able to walk a very far distance. And when he was doing a little bit better, and my grandfather's not a proud man. He's a good man. He's an exceptional person. But I tried to get him to go to the zoo with us. They hadn't been out of the house in forever. And I said, we'll get a wheelchair. We'll push you around. I know from my grandmother that was, he did it once. But it was a lot to swallow. And we can understand that, I think, because none of us really want to think about, you and I are early 40s, I don't want to think about if my health is bad when I'm 80, if I'm 80, and what that might look like. You just don't. You just put that off. Romans, in the beginning of Romans, when Paul's laying out how the Gentile and the Jew are in the same boat morally, even though one of them has been blessed and advantaged with the law and with with temple worship, with the worship of God and God's presence, and all that, the, all that made that available, all the, all that was necessary to to make oneself ready to be in close proximity to God. When he's he's saying, but morally, you guys are in the same boat in terms of need, in terms of necessity, and he's contrasting the Jew with the Gentile, and he says about the Gentile that. They would not give God thanks or acknowledge him. That's their source of depravity. And then it keeps going. They wouldn't allow God to remain in their, to remain in their consciousness as the thing that they needed most. And therefore, that leads to thankfulness. That leads to worship. And so their foolish hearts became darkened. And, they ex- and so what, what do you do next? You exchange the uncreated for the created. God is uncreated. That's what you have available to you, but you make a trade. And pretty soon you've got images of animals, Yeah, you know? And that's, I mean, even cultures still have this to this day. I mean, like in China, they eat crazy things like shark fins and bear paws and tiger paws because they think 
virility of this animal is going to transfer to them or its strength. You make this trade. You've got one thing available, but what 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 started the chain? That you wouldn't give thanks and acknowledge God. But what do you give thanks for? Things that things that promote life. So in the end, you don't recognize your contingency and that spirals you. Yeah, and in terms of the contrasting that with original sin, to me I see that's the issue. We forget our contingency. If you think about it though, with original sin, it almost I think it does acknowledge contingency, but it, it acknowledges it from a purely spiritual sense. Yeah, for the will. And even as, just as you were speaking, um, I was thinking through about how interwoven, you know, because we always try to separate variables to understand them. And then, and then we don't want to keep them separated in general. We want to put it, we want to put it back into the mix and incorporate each variable into the whole story. We really struggle with that. We really struggle to articulate a coherent story rather than focus on one variable. Hmm. So I'm thinking of, I mean, original sin is a great obvious example. Um, and the, the legal aspect mm-hmm. being, you know, separate, pulled out of the story, understood ad nauseum. And then we have an entire uh, aspect of Christian culture built on it. Hmm. Um, there, there are, I'm sure, other things. No, you're right. It's a, it's black and white thinking, I think. You know, and I think it, it turns into that because... Yes. It, but it comes to collapsing things. Last time we talked about how nature and person or nature and will... I mean, in theology about God and about us, they get collapsed. Mm-hmm. For the sake of simplicity. Well, it's 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 to make God abide by some philosophical in in Catholic theology. Again, they very much are trying to synthesize Aristotle with Hebraic thought. They just don't mesh. I've been meaning to talk about this, but there's an order. There's an order to theology. I feel a deep connection to a lot of recent Reform thinkers like Bavink and Frame and Bonson and and others and their apologetical method. We very much want somebody is not familiar with these terms to understand what we're saying. So imagine this. You're trying to you're trying to tell somebody why you think they should believe God exists, the Christian God. Where do you start? Do you start with a philosophical concept of who God is? He's immutable. You start going through a list of attributes. He's omnipotent, omnipresent, all these things. Or we have revelation saying, I am. We don't have God saying, hey, get a pen and paper. I'm going to make a list for you. And then we're going to have a terminology quiz in a minute. He's revealed as person, as persons. God is personal. So so which way do you start? Do you start with what's revealed? The personal God, the triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Or do you start with what God is and then go backwards? And in both orders, they sort of look like who is revealed and then what are his activities? What is what does he do? And and then you end up with what is God? That's the point where you stop talking and you only say what God isn't. Somebody says God is God is hateful. You say, No, God is not hateful. I mean it's that simple. But but you take what's revealed and you look what he does and then and then you say, This is God, and he's he's really beyond knowing past that point, but he does make himself known. In the other order, you take a philosophical concept 
Then you look at what he does, and then you get to the persons of the Trinity. And it's totally backwards. And what it does is it puts the priority on your reasoning ability rather than on God's communicative ability. It it really puts God in a place where you're dissecting, you're analyzing him instead of him analyzing you. I guess I say that because I feel like one veers towards destroying a contingency and one upholds it just fine. It's a great, it's a really great and subtle point. Humans, I tend to want to judge humanity for being too simplistic. I actually think I'm probably wrong on that because I think the human mind, and you were kind of getting at this, is really built to understand God in a mm-hmm. way. And I think what happens is the story gets distorted and the human mind is really good at saying, hold on, that doesn't compute. Right. So I'm going to reject it. Or now, I'm going to fix it. Yeah. Yes, with another perverse. Or or I'm going to fix narrative. it by filling in the philosophical needs. Right. Yesterday I was I was going through I was looking for clips that we will play on uh, cultural references to original sin, Adam and Eve and so forth. And I came across a YouTube channel, the Thomistic something. I'm starting to like listen to these lectures on original sin and man, it's like an hour long and I now I can hang with this guy, but the average person will never will never get through this hour. But see that that just illustrates the point for, further. And this of course does not absolve humanity from needing to acknowledge God according to Romans one. What it does though is explains and offers um, a theory as to why humans are so good at rejecting this systematic, deracinated way of understanding God. Even now, Hollywood is at a low point. I think many people would agree on that. Mm. But man, what what resonates with the whole population even now? A good story. Right. Everybody knows this. Yeah. So, man, if we are perverting the best story of all time, hmm. there's going to be a huge amount of rejection. Or maybe not even rejection, because that, that makes it, that almost gives humans too much credit. But it, it definitely, it gets us on the wrong foot as Christians for articulating the truth of God mm-hmm. to the world. One of the reasons I was willing to really delve into this and to spend the mental time is that I really started to find most of the apologetics that I was listening to, not in terms of God's existence, but in terms of um, soteriology, in terms of what the gospel is, I started to realize these aren't going to take a beating. I don't think they are anymore. I don't think the traditional narrative, it can take a beating. You're saying it. You're saying it holds up the traditional soteriology. No, I'm saying it doesn't hold up. It it can't take the beating of the world because can you imagine being a mother in the Middle Ages or before, where the mortality rate is outrageously high, Uh and you believe that if I don't rush to get my kid baptized right away, they're going to go to hell. I mean, how many people? How many parents, fathers, and mothers? They were having exorcisms performed in the womb in case the child was stillborn. That doesn't sound Christian to me. 
It just doesn't. I, I think when you look at Catholic theology now, there's a great number of Catholic Christians throughout the world, and I do consider them Christians. But when people start dissecting, start looking at history, they have to acknowledge this. And a lot of times, I mean, I'm, I mean, I guess I'm talking about us as Christians as a group, as a group of people who love Jesus across all continents and denominations and whatever, we have to be very concerned about, about the gospel and about the validity of our faith being stable. Mm-hmm. Apologetics is something we all have in common, the, the defense of the faith. Every Christian should have a good reason for believing what they believe. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, that's not really faith. It's, it's wishing or it's, or it's just going along with, with a cult leader, practically. But Peter agrees. When we look at, again, what you talked about, Immaculate Conception, that was invented to protect original sin, to protect Mary from it. Mm-hmm. And then you look at later, they invented, and this is true in Protestant churches too, what do you tell if you're Catholic and you've been telling everybody? Your baby's going to hell unless they're baptized. Oh, my baby couldn't make it. It was, it died first. Oh, too bad. You know, God must have chosen it for damnation. And then fast forward a little while. Hey, that's pretty harsh. Mm, let's think up a fix. This is what I mean by we fix the story. Let's, let's do limbo. How about limbo? No, not the not the dance. <laughs> Let's just do limbo for the babies. And you, and it's not funny, but it's like, man, it's it's hard. Your baby is somewhere, but it's up to the good God to like he can decide. Now, in our church, before this one Sunday, they were talking about infant baptism and and that God chooses from. And this is from the Westminster Confession. That God chooses from among the baptized who will receive salvation. So they have a similar idea. What happens when that's too harsh? Something like limbo happens. You you just leave it to the grace of God. That's what you tell. I mean, because this becomes a very pastoral conversation. So so what do you do? If you're like a modern person, most, I think, evangelical churches, if, a, if a, some parents lost a child, the pastor would tell them, they're in heaven. Now, that was a progression, and that was based on a pastoral concern because Jesus doesn't really seem like he's let the little children come to me. He's not saying, hey, um, you can get baptized. Sorry, buddy. Yeah. Well, when people look apologetically, when, when people are trying to defend their faith and they look at this lineage, it doesn't look good. It really just doesn't, it doesn't look good. It It looks like not just develop, it's not just doctrinal development, doctrinal mechanics. It's yeah. it's doctrinal re-engineering. It's doctrinal... There's a, form, um, there's a form of contingency in that. Well, we know the truth. we got to right. figure out how to get back to the truth. So, okay, well, if this is true, then we got to make this true. If, and that refers to what you were talking about with fixing it. What's the answer to that? Let's bring it back to what we are contending is the is the true story whether you're evangelical or catholic or reformed or whatever initially there is this contingency moment that reinforces your need for god for forgiveness for for appreciating life all those things they ought to accompany any sort of conversion 
And knowledge of sin does a great job at getting that done. Obviously, it humbles you. Sometimes it humiliates you and then brings you back to humility. But later, what does it do? Like, I don't think it has the ongoing effect. Because here's what happens. If you're, if you're reformed, I, I mix these things up because I see them all as part of the same. We all have our distortions, but we are all following Christ. What I mean is, like, sometimes I lump reformed and Catholics and, and evangelicals together. That's because I, I do sort of see them all operating within the same framework Absolutely. because they all have the same presuppositions about the fall. And then it's really in the details how it gets worked out. Do I need some... Do I need some like merit from the treasury of, of merit or do I just get all my merit from Jesus or do conceptually they, they talk the same language a lot of the time? Because the problem is original sin. Exactly. Given all these distortions, given all our narratival rejections culturally in this modern moment, what is the solution? Um, which of course requires us to redefine the problem, which is... And by redefine, I just mean shine the spotlight over on the, our Orthodox brothers. At the time that Augustine brings forward original sin, there's not a Catholic and an Orthodox church. It's that the people who rejected Augustine's thoughts, like St. John Chrysostom, like St. John of Damascus, they were part of the same church. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, they were geographically isolated to where I don't think St. Augustine had the opportunity to get some pushback, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. And this is where it gets difficult, though. This is where it gets difficult to articulate the difference where where the wrong fork where the wrong fork in the road was chosen. And I don't think it's got to be big. I think these things are subtle. I think the distortions in a story's understanding are typically subtle. And I'm trying to think of an example. Um, let's just say a, a communication between family members. How many times has there been one little detail missed that creates, you know, one parent not showing up to pick up a kid, which is a huge miss, but you're still on the same page. You're still trying to live the same story as a family, but man, this was a big, this was a big whiff or, you know, let's say a marriage ends in divorce. Where was that first subtle road Hmm. chosen that got you? on the path to divorce. Hmm. And ultimately you could say, you know, we're divorced from reality. We're divorced from our, our, our denominational brothers. We're divorced from the Eastern church, you know, and it always starts or like in the, in the PC and the Presbyterian church, for example, you know, there's been t- arguments that have led to a fractionation that put different letters in their, in their names. Hmm. Um, so I don't think, I don't think these things are in, you're right. A lot of times, it, huge. It, they're subtle. They start subtle. Augustine, in, in, t- in terms of the subtlety, he has no, literally, no appreciation for the Greek language, mm. and that's true to a large extent after the Latin Vulgate uh, becomes sort of the standard Bible in in the West. They, a lot of times, could not articulate clearly to somebody who spoke Greek. But they're the ones still handling the Bible in its original language. I think that's a one-up on on that side. And it seems like Augustine is knowledgeable that St. John Chrysostom has written about his ideas about 
babies going to hell automatically if they're not baptized. Or He thinks it's absurd. And they're somewhat contemporary. But when you try to read the other person's response or whatever, it sounds like they agree with you mm-hmm. because of the... The subtlety? It's also some hubris because it's like you don't think the original language the Bible was written in mm-hmm. is worthy to to continue with? I mean, it's exhausting even just to parse out. Let's say you have two two thinkers, two philosophical thinkers that you respect that are that are engaged on an internet debate nowadays. Mm-hmm. It's exhausting to keep up with that. Can mm-hmm. you imagine trying to hash out some major theological difference when you were reliant on carriers? Funny, in the Arian controversy, when you've got uh, Arius, who's teaching that Jesus has created sort of the precursor to Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons uh, in some in some ways. It's not just that you've got this theological controversy going on, but it's popularized. The average person knows about it. Mm. It's what people talk about at the market, in the public spaces. So there's there's some celebrity, and there's some added pressure and anxiety to perform well. I mean, Augustine's a rhetorician, and so he's he's trained in debate. He he makes comments about himself when he was involved in Manichaeanism that it was way too easy for him to sort of bully someone argumentatively and that he enjoyed it. And I think he remained that way because when he is involved in the Pelagian controversy— Again, they're debating about, does man need grace and salvation, or is he okay now that Jesus has come, and so forth. Augustine is 65, and he's working his tail off. He's, he's just got a lot going on. You've got the sacking of Rome, you've got City of God, you've got this controversy. Before that, he had the Donatist controversy. People who, because so many Christians during the persecutions, their leaders had flaked, had sold out, had told people where the Christian communities were, where the writings were. Those people were the people who administered their baptisms and the sacraments. And now you've got this wing who thinks that the sacraments that they've received, their baptism is now invalid, that they're pretty much to put their whole spiritual life just up in the air. And, and Augustine solves this controversy. He's right, I think, the way that he solves it, um, that God's grace doesn't depend on the, the holiness of a person, that it, it doesn't need that, but they become sort of the first, almost, I don't know, people compare them to the Puritans and these things that are, are the lead up to where the, these, how these doctrines get formulated. And then again, just fast forward and pastorally, you're going to have to, you're going to have to invent doctrines to console mothers. This is, this is where it leads. And then if you think today to believe in something like an age of accountability, right. so until a child or a person, this would include people who are mentally handicapped and so forth, is able to hear and respond to the gospel, whenever that takes place, maybe it's 12 years old, that person is not in the same liability, under right. the same liability as when they hit this age. I remember this, being detrimentally confused by that when I was exposed to that doctrine, Yeah, or that teaching. Like it threw my faith into crisis. I was like, well, this seems really arbitrary. I don't see that anywhere in scripture. You think of cultures that have some sort of coming of age mm-hmm. uh, moment, like a bar mitzvah or a quinceanera or something like that. They, yeah, we acknowledge when puberty hits mm-hmm. and, and different things like sure. that. 
that's not the same thing as knowing right and wrong necessarily. That's different for everyone. And back to our marshmallow test, there's something, you, know, you watch these videos, you could tell the kid, they, they tend to know there's no, there's no real penalty. Mom's not going to be mad if I, if I go ahead and eat this marshmallow. But they're sneaky. You might have a brother and sister next to each other, and they're coming up with all these lies, and then they're blaming each other when mom comes back. Augustine sees these tendencies as evidence of of them being evil. He, he sees himself in them. He even thinks about, say, say a mother has twins, and she's nursing both of them, and, and one of them is crying or even maybe claws at the other child while they're nursing or something. He sees that as this inherent evil. Mm. And he, he sees himself in the, in the child. Like, the, you, should be, you should be happy. You're getting fed. You're warm. What's wrong with you, kid? Well, it's your evil. It's a lot. Whew. It's a tiny bit of evidence to, to yeah. describe something terrible to. Originally, in the, in the church's... When a, an infant was baptized, from then on, they would take communion. So babies took communion. And in some Presbyterian churches, they practice this. I've been to a few. Um, but it's a controversial topic. Right. So help me out. Where in the Eden narrative, because we always keep coming back to the Eden narrative, where in the Eden narrative are these controversies coming from? Is it the sequence of... God issues a command. The command is broken. The curse. How can we get such, such diverging Orthodox versus Protestant views from the same story? Are we not in the story enough? Are we taking the story for granted? To go back to our early earlier discussion about contingency. No, it's we're we're assuming things that aren't there. Okay. Like okay. we're reading Augustine into Genesis. There's no Jewish authority or interpreter. They don't have a doctrine of original sin. They never did. And they don't now. I think, honestly, what I believe has happened in, in the West is that the world that they're trying to evangelize is, is pagan. And I think at the same time you've got Jewish-Christian relationship is extremely tense. Because... The people who do not have sympathy for the Christians or who are not becoming Christians, many of them are active, like St. Paul had been, in persecuting the Christians for a very long time. They had no authority to arrest or to physically harm them, so they were like moles to the Romans, only in a different way. They were threatening the Romans before Jesus is crucified. You see the the Jewish leadership sort of, they're threatening Pilate. You want another insurrection? You want to lose your job? You want to lose your head? And then you've got the pagan, the pagan world that you're trying to reach. So you're getting somewhat disconnected from a Jewish Hebrew understanding of, of the flow of the Bible. You're not listening to their voices anymore. The relationship is just that bad. And, and people are getting hurt as a consequence. You've got a disconnect. This goes back to our what I just said about the order that you do theology in is important. If you go to the pagan, you try to find everything we have in common with pagans, start there. 
it's a bad place to start. See, you think of the pagan sacrificial system. The pagan sacrifices are to appease the gods, or it's to get them to do what you want them to do. It's it's reciprocal in that way. That's why the first Christians were called atheists by the pagans, because the pagans are, are scared that because we're tolerating another group now, besides just this Jewish community, of people who will not worship the gods, that the gods will be angry. This is the same thing. We're both going through City of God right now. Same exact thing going on with Augustine. The people, after the sack of Rome, they're blaming the Christians because they won't worship the gods. So the gods are mad. And so this is why this has happened. And Augustine, at the same time, is having to explain to the Christians why God has allowed this. With the pagan sacrifices, going back, you're offering, you're, you're, you're feeding them so that they will keep you safe. You'll have abundant crops. You'll have rain. You'll have... And this is where, if you think to the Old Testament, this is the contrast going on with Elijah and Elijah and the prophets of Baal. It's a showdown between you claim this, I'll show you. I'll, here, let's have a, let's play a game. And then it turns into this very sarcastic, hilarious sort of interchange where, to me, that's the right, that's the right method. And that's how the New Testament actually portrays what's happened. Christ has defeated Satan. Christ has put his enemies to an open shame, to mockery. Their footstools, they're going to be under our feet. If you integrate with the pagan notion of sacrifice, and it's just my suspicion that this is what took place. And he writes, the day the revolution began, he comes to a similar conclusion that it may have been through apologetical mistakes. That in trying to explain the gospel to pagans, they drew commonalities that weren't really there. I mean, that does happen culturally when you're trying to bring a concept maybe foreign to these people. I mean, they they don't, the pagan doesn't have a creation from nothing. They've got an eternal universe. They don't have some loving God who's willing. I mean, this is all, this is why Paul says they think it's. They think it's dumb. Well, and it's another reason, too, that Israel was never to intermarry yeah. know, with pagan cultures. Right. It's just a, too much of a vulnerability. Right. This whole story of it's Samson. Preserving the, preserving the story is real. <laughs> yeah. It happened throughout yeah. Israel's entire history. The weirdest things in the Bible in terms of uh, the prohibitions and the laws are all about don't mix things up that shouldn't get mixed up. Yes. And sometimes, again, in apologetics, that's what happens. You're trying to explain something. The pagan notion is, I bring this, this thing dies, in order for the God not to be mad. That sounds a little like some Christian portrayals of what Jesus is doing. Absolutely. I'm going to die so that God stops being mad at you. Right. That's how you formulate. Then you ask the question next. Well, who's that for? Mm-hmm. Okay, whoever believes. Well... What about people who've never heard? I uh, don't know. They're going to hell. Um, they're going to heaven. Every time this something like this happens, where there's a blend, and again, that's why you don't even don't even mix your cotton with polyester, you know, or, or whatever the fabrics are. It's to reinforce certain things should not be united because they are mutually exclusive. Mm. It's oil and water. Don't hope for anything better than that. That's just how it is. And so the alternative is 
you know, going back to the Eden narrative, we're contingent on God. We need his life to come into our life constantly. Mm -hmm. I think what happens again, when you're, you're dealing with a pantheistic world, even if you take God's will and God's nature and you make them the same, what happens to me is that it ends up looking very pantheistic because that means if God creates and that was his will, then how is the creation different from his will and how are they now different from him? That sets up a whole predestinarian scheme because it's all will in the end. Just like in, in Islam, Allah means submit to his will. It's like he's all will, he's all thought. It's a philosophical presupposition. It's not a biblical one. Who is revealed? I am. I'm your father. I'm the way, the truth. That's who's revealed. I guess, to me, the correction is just to, I don't think theology should be hard. It's when you synthesize things that won't synthesize, mm. that's hard. It doesn't work. People eventually, it might take hundreds of years, figure it out. You get far enough along to where churches have lost their authority and can't hold the story together much longer. Now people feel free to openly criticize it. I'm going to play uh, that clip from Rodrigo Duterte. He was the president of the Philippines, and he, he's a crazy guy. Who is this stupid guy? Stupid You created some, something perfect. And then you think of a, an event that would tempt and destroy the quality of your work. How can you rationalize a God? I'm not endorsing him in any way. He's in a Filipino country that's predominantly Catholic. And he goes on a rant about how stupid God is on, on air for creating this perfect world, setting up to fail, and ruining the thing that he had worked so hard to make. How can you rationalize this? And this is a, this is a president, and he's obviously, he must be frustrated with his own people. Sure. On top of it, he's sort of nuts. When I first heard that, I thought, blasphemer. Now I'm kind of like, well, hmm. <laughs> if, like, if your assumptions are that, then yeah. thus, what, then and so yes, what I'm you're going to conclude that. You've got a public leader of a country that's predominantly Catholic saying these things. Sure. We've moved way, way far away far. from, hey, it's not culturally acceptable to like go on full frontal attack to now it's anybody can do it. And I'm saying there's an apologetical necessity for Christians to rethink these things. Uh, to me, what typically happens in the Genesis story is Christians have been scrambling to try to fix evolution with Genesis. Yeah. I think we have a bigger problem of of these presuppositions that are already in Genesis yeah. because really the, the evolution thing becomes much, much less of a problem once we realize fall did not result in inheriting depravity, better get washed away or going to hell. It is bad. It is, it is hard. It brought death into the world. It's no less serious. It's because that problem, it has a different solution and it's going to be not the pagan conception of appeasing God so that he will get his anger to exhaust somewhere else, as if that were possible. You need forgiveness. You need to be set right again. You need to be new creation. Like in the beginning, you need to be reordered. You need to be put back on track. 
You need to be set back on a path towards your destiny, towards what you were meant for. And that's what's good for you. That's what's going to make you happy. In the end, it's going to be with me. And it's going to, I'm going to be the fulfillment of all of that. But you're not just going to be with just me. Your whole family, hopefully, will be there too. This is going to be existence versus sometime in eternity past. God picked, based on some perfect math problem in his mind, you know, the, the people that would be saved. And he laid out the plan for how they would be saved. And then it's going to wrap up. And, and then they're going to be glorified and so forth. He's going to perpetuate the glory of God. And I think another is going to create all kinds of anxiety and disorder humanity. Yeah. I hate to say it that way. Almost just talking about this, it's almost like we need to go back to Genesis and just read one verse at a time. Let's think through key features of Genesis. Really, these are keys to understanding the whole of Scripture. God creates from nothing. The man... The stuff man is made out of is from the earth. He's earthly, but then the spirit gives life, and he's united to the spirit, and that makes him fully himself. And that motivation is towards life. And it's, and it's selfless, in a sense, because he doesn't need... He, all his needs are met, so he can, he can give himself away also to his wife and vice versa. They come into a union. They're not identical. They come into a union. The earth and the heavens have this, there's a distinction with a union. The land animals and the sea animals, there's a distinction, but there's a union. You move into the logic for a lot of the laws in the, in the Old Testament, it's that holy unions and unholy union. So if you touch a dead body, you've just, you've made this unholy union, whether you meant to or not. You're not necessarily sinful in the sense of, I chose to do evil, but you did come in contact with death. You made this union. So to to remedy that, you would go through a cleansing. Purification. Yeah, some kind of purification. If you unite with the pure. Exactly. Yeah. And the sacrifice, that's the function that it performed most of the time was to you've got this union with death. It's in your body. Sometimes you expose it with illness, with blood, other relations, and you expose it through the loss of life. When you bleed, you lose some life. When you are sick, you look like you're losing some life. The sacrifice was to recompense for this this lacking in you. Reinfuse life. Right. Now, did it actually do that? Not really. No. It it reinforced that this is what you need. You need life. And blood sacrifices were understood. The life is in the blood. Well, yeah, if you lose all your blood, you're dead. I think this is an important thing to say. It didn't mechanically infuse more life, but because the spiritual and the physical are so interconnected and you cannot disassociate one from the other, it did infuse life. Yeah, I, no, I'm not denying that. I'm just, I just, I'm just trying to make a distinction between the New Testament yeah, being yeah. greater. That's all. Not an accusation at all. Yeah, just, just a point of clarity more than anything else. The union of distinct. But complementary things is is a massive concept, but it's so foundational to moving out into a, what I would say is a proper understanding of the of the story. But it's like so basic to us at the same time. Mm-hmm. We know we're different. I like the idea of a choir again. Every person in the choir, even if they have a part, even if they sing baritone or soprano, 
they all understand our goal is to bring this together in unison mm -hmm. with our parts yeah. and and to produce this but we we don't think while we think of ourselves as a choir we don't think that we are each member in the choir that's so good that's I, so good and i think that's how the body of christ is is yeah. presented in the new testament there's lots of lots of parts mm -hmm. but there's one body yet we're all distinct within that body that's and that's why it says he gave some to be apostles some to be for the building up of the faith and that means they all that's why they all need each other yeah. when there's things in our theology that confuse what's a person what's a will or mm -hmm. going back to the creation from nothing that establishes all the differences between things and it, because things are different it allows them to touch each other, to come into union. Because if you're already in union with something else, you don't ever really, you already are it. When you first kiss your your wife, you never did it before that, right? I mean, it's the first. Mm -hmm. When people make a child, the union creates the life. So simple, actually. And that's the logic of scripture. Some things aren't really good for you. And some things you don't come into union with. Some things you're not ready to, like the right. tree of the knowledge of, or like touching the ark. Someday, I think we get to touch the ark mm -hmm. or, or the equivalent thereof. Mm -hmm. There's this idea that in our state, the state that we are in now, that we can experience the glory of God, but we can't experience it turned up yeah, all the way. Right. But someday... At least a lot more than we do now. So this framework, though, that you've kind of articulated, the idea of union... Uh, and and holy union versus unholy union. This definitely strikes me as a more intuitive framework to kind of move out into other Christian doctrine with, mm -hmm. or, or not Christian doctrine, but move out into understanding the broader story with. Because oh, if definitely. If you're moving out into the rest of the Pentateuch and then the, the prophets um, and the New Testament, this framework is going to naturally weave the story and integrate the story more cohesively than trying to impose an external doctrine back into the story and yeah. moving out into the rest of the story with this with this one doctrine in mind, which is original sin. Because of how original sin gets articulated, it sets up a whole predestination scheme where everything that happens to maximize the glory of God and to for the good of the elect of, to ensure their salvation everything gets planned everything so that makes union seem impossible if everything's planned and god's will is his plan and god is his plan reality is in your head like in the matrix or like in this yoda thing it's or in the ai example the reality in your head whatever we mean by that but we know what it means it just means your own personal reality regardless of if that's true for anybody else is all there is for you that's easy that's easy because you just have to worry about you and you can kind of pretend that nothing else is real but we really only know ourselves in relation to others others are our mirror back others provide correction for us even even when they don't mean to even when they don't do it well even a bully can help you become a better person you can't be even a person alone yeah so this idea of integra integrative union i think is, is really good to move forward into whatever we talk about next and be constantly 
as a as a result of death we're recognizing this model of integrative union um, as proposed by god to move forward into life into understanding the story and as a tool of wisdom to really recognize error Mm-hmm. Or when something's trying to be imposed on the story that doesn't belong, an unholy union, mm-hmm. something that's going to perverse, something that's going to dis- disintegrate mm-hmm. uh, a proper understanding. So it informs everything. It informs how you think about baptism. It informs yeah. how you think about sin in general. Yeah. What's it mean to be a temple of the Holy Spirit? I'll end with this. I was I was reading John three the other day, and there's a phrase that stuck out to me that was confusing. I pulled out D. A. Carson's commentary. Before I read it, I had come up with four or five what I thought were plausible solutions. And then I read the commentary, and they were all listed as possible interpretations. Hmm. What if I read this from, from the perspective of union? Huh, got it. It makes the Bible make sense. Hmm. Think back to the Jewish person with all these laws that are all about, don't touch this, don't touch that. These aren't about something stupid they're about reinforcing union and contingency Contingency. because you're contingent you need others you have to come into union with those others you have to do it cooperatively and you eventually do it corporately with me and we're all united beautiful well with that why don't we uh call it a day and we will definitely kind of rehash this on our own and, and kind of decide where we want to jump into next time with this idea of union and contingency uh, as the interpretive model. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. 